0: The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. It's good to be together as we now observe the third week of Advent and study God's Word here in Luke. I want to especially greet those who are watching online. We're glad you're tuning in with us, and we look forward to, Lord willing, seeing you in person at some point. But would you join me as we now ask the Lord for help in prayer? Father in heaven, we ask that you would come now in the power of your Spirit so that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear your good news, your glorious truth, and that it would transform and change us this morning so that we would not leave unchanged, But come now in these next minutes and break into our lives so that the joy of the Lord would be our strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The songs remind us around this time of year that it's a wonderful time of the year or that you're to have a holly jolly Christmas But my guess is that some of us feel more like Charlie Brown in a Charlie Brown's Christmas. He says this, I just don't understand Christmas, I guess, and I'm getting presents and I'm sending Christmas cards and decorating the trees and all that, but I'm still not happy. I always end up feeling depressed. Perhaps some of us can resonate with Charlie Brown this morning. Joy and happiness at Christmas can feel elusive. Christmas can be one of the more difficult times of the year, especially this year. The weight of the pandemic, from masks to vaccines, the election, and differences and disputes with family and friends, all leave us a little bit feeling like Charlie. He goes on to say, I feel depressed. I know I should be happy, but I'm not. My trouble's Christmas. I just don't understand it. Instead of feeling unhappy, I feel sort of let down. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? And Charlie articulates for us the foundational question that we want to answer this morning. What is Christmas all about? And should we indeed be happy in a season such as this? And that's where Linus, or more accurately, Luke gives us the answer. Because Linus puts down his blanket, stops sucking his thumb for just long enough to recite a portion of Luke 2, which is what we look at this morning. He says that there's good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The point this morning. The point of Luke 2 is that God has come down. God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ has come to dwell in and among his people so that he would bring them everlasting joy. God has come. The Bible calls him Emmanuel, God with us. So in a season of quarantining and self-isolation and social distancing, Jesus broke all the rules and restrictions and came down into a broken and suffering-filled world so that we could experience everlasting joy. And my hope for us this morning is that joy wouldn't be elusive, but that we would take our eyes off of all the distractions, all the anxieties, all the fears that are so present before us, and then lift our eyes and see Jesus afresh this morning. It's like when we go on a drive with my kids, and we're on a long country road, and what do they point out mile after mile? They see the roadkill. So they say, oh, that's a deer. I think that's a raccoon. I don't know what that one is. It's too mangled. And they see the opossum. And what I want to say is, kids, stop looking at the roadkill on the side of the road and lift your eyes and see the sunset and see the fall trees and see the horizon and look at the sky. And so this morning, take your eyes off the roadkill of 2020 and lift your eyes and see Jesus. See Jesus afresh this morning. My invitation is to invite us in to marvel at the magnificence of the Messiah. So there's three sections in this text, and we're going to look at the three. The first is the birth in verses 1 to 7. Then we get heaven's response in 8 through 14. And then we get earth's response in 15 to 21. And let me just set the context just a little bit more. Jesus was broken Jesus was born into a broken world. It was less than ideal. Sometimes we can think of Jesus' birth as this beautiful, you know, Thomas Kincaid sort of painting, you know, fat cherub-like angels flittering around, the animals are all preparing the straw, and that it was this beautiful silent night. Well, if you've ever been an observer of a birth, you know it's not silent or peaceful or calm. Andrew Peterson, in his song, Labor of Love, puts it this way. He says, it was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night on the streets of David's town. And the stable was not clean, and the cobblestones were cold, and little Mary, full of grace, with the tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. The cobblestones were cold, blood on the ground, and no family nearby for Mary and Joseph. The night was harsh. And it's into this world of deep darkness that Jesus comes. Now look with me at verses 1 and 2. We get here a bit of the contrast of kings. We see Caesar Augustus, and then we see the mention of Corinius when he was governor of Syria. So Luke is telling us That Jesus is born into the deep darkness of this current political context, which is Roman occupation. Our passage opens up, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus in that all the world should be registered. Earlier, Luke opens up his entire gospel, Luke 1, 5, and he says this, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. So Herod the Great is ruling during this time, and the first listeners of this would have known His son, Herod Antipas, or Herod the Tetrarch, would be the one who would decapitate John the Baptist. It's into this broken and dark world that Jesus comes into. Occupation, taxation, and foreign kings on the throne. Now, Caesar makes a decree that would call all citizens to register for the purpose of assessing taxes. So death and taxes, few things ever change. Those are the constants, and the government wants its money. Now, verse 2 tells us that Corinius was governor of Syria at this time, but the records show us, like the Jewish historian Josephus, that Corinius wasn't governor until probably AD 6 or 7, and so many times biblical scholars say either there was two Coriniuses both with the same name that ruled at different times, or there was a Quirinius that ruled earlier and then again later. Or if you look at the subscript in your Bible, if you have a paper Bible, that there's a little subscript there, that the word first could be translated as before. So it could read this way. This was the registration before Quirinius was governor of Syria. And the point that Luke makes is because he knows about this later census because he references it in acts 537 it actually incited a revolt but what's the point of all this what's the point of these first two verses his point is that these things really happened these are historical realities see the birth of jesus is only good news if it actually happened and if it's historical fact do the birth origin stories of Superman or Batman or Captain America help you in your life? They don't help me at all because those are fictional characters. They're, they're a feel-good movie, and then I go back to my life with all of its problems, all of its anxieties, all of its struggles. And yet many see Jesus as a fictional, mythical figure that's supposed to give them a couple of feel-good moments around Christmas. And what Luke is trying to do for us this morning, he says, I've written these things so that you would have certainty, because these things are historical facts, that you can root them in history. You know Caesar Augustus. You've read about him in world history. Jesus came at this time into this political context because these things really happened. And if they really happened, they reverberate throughout the history of our world and transform countries and societies and our lives as well. Christ broke into the world, writing himself into the very fabric of redemptive history. And that should amaze us this morning. The second reason he includes these things is because he's contrasting Caesar, the king at the time, with the coming king, King Jesus. Now, Caesar Augustus was considered probably the greatest Roman emperor ever. He instituted uh, the first police force and the first firefighting force and built out extensive roads. But what was he most known for? Any of you from world history class remember Pax Romana, unprecedented peace in the kingdom at that time. And Caesar would make sure there would be peace in this kingdom by exerting his power and tyranny. He would use force to bring it about, and yet the angels say this, th- this other king that's coming is going to bring peace, but not through tyranny and power, but through laying down his life, sacrifice, gentle and lowly. He would lay down his life for his people. Here we have a contrast of kings. King Caesar And then we have King Jesus, the true king, to come and take his throne. What we're also seeing is that Caesar makes this decree so that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, which would fulfill prophecy, which we'll just see in a moment. So while King Caesar is sitting on the throne, we get the real story, that God is on his throne. He's using the command, the decree of Caesar, in order to bring about the fulfillment of his prophecy confirming for us that a king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God is writing this story, and he's using earthly people at work. Now, we see the prophetic fulfillment in verses 3 to 5. You see the mention, again, in verse 4 of the city of David and the house and lineage of David. We looked at this last week. It's the fulfillment of the prophecy of the promise that was made to King David in 2 Samuel 7, that you will have an offspring that will sit on the throne that will rule forever. And so they're making a point. David, connected to David, of the house and lineage of David. That's where Joseph's from. The other prophecy that's being fulfilled is Micah 5 2. That reads, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old from ancient of days it's fulfilling the prophecy that was made in Micah 5:2 that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem now, you might think, well, what's the point of all that? You might care if you're a biblical scholar, but what, what, what does that do for me? It means that Jesus coming down into our world is not a backup plan. It's not plan B. It's not an afterthought. It's not that, oh, humanity screwed it up again. Let's figure out how to fix it. But it was prophesied long ago because this is his plan. God delights to send his own son into the world. This is the way it was planned so that we would receive the greatest gift in all the world. It means God did exactly as he said he would do so that we could trust him. And we'll talk more about that later but look with me at six and seven here we see the birth and so few words capture one of the most profound events in all of human history it is the most humble of births that's what all of that is pointing to swaddling cloths laid in a manger no room in the inn the manger is probably some sort of feeding trough and if you've been around farm animals you know that this is not an idyllic scene; this is a fragrant scene, and not the good kind of fragrant. If you catch my drift. The reference to an inn is not like a motel six but probably like a two story guest house. There would be the animals on the first floor and then a main room and a guest house on the second floor and Chances are either they're going to relatives or perhaps a a general guest house in the city in that region and there's no room for them. Someone else is making use of the guest house. So Jesus is to be born among the animals on the first floor. No room for them. The point of all this is that Jesus, who comes down into the deep darkness of our world, breaks in as a humble servant not as a demanding dictator. This is so important for us to catch. He doesn't come robed in splendor with gold and all of the kind of entrapments of royalty. He gets born into poverty so that when Jesus says later, in Matthew, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The reason we can come to Jesus is because he knows what it's like to receive broken and hurting people who are frazzled and fearful and anxious. He says, come, come to me. And so often we have the wrong view of Jesus or we have the wrong view of God the Father. We think he's like the elf on the shelf. Have you been naughty or nice? Have you been yelling at your kids again or social distancing or whatever it is? Naughty, nice. Or we think maybe he's like the Grinch, just upset that you guys can't figure it out. And yet the reality is not that. He's not trying to figure out how to punish us or to levy higher taxes. But Jesus came clothed in humility. God sent him so that we would have joy. Joy everlasting and taste of eternal life. We have a precious Savior in Jesus. The New Testament records that it's better to give than to receive that Jesus spoke those very words. And that's why Christians so often were a generous people who love to be generous, to love to give things. Why? Because we received the greatest gift in all the world, in Christ Jesus. And yet God did not give begrudgingly, like, ah. No one can figure it out. I guess I'll have to send Jesus to sort things out. He says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, and I've planned it from before the ages began that I would give my son at this moment for the everlasting joy of my people so that all of them would see that this is good news of great joy that will be for all the people. God sent Jesus to come down to bring true and everlasting joy and peace. Now, this leads us to heaven's announcement. You can look with me at verses 8 to 12. The shepherds are out in the field keeping watch over the flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appears. And it says, the glory of the Lord shone around them. This is the bright, majestic, blinding light and glory of God. It's actually the same word that's used at Jesus' transfiguration in Luke 9. He shines with the glory of God. It's actually the same word that's used in Paul's conversion in Acts 26, where he's blinded by a light. And when Stephen looks up into heaven just before he's stoned to death, he sees this light, the same glory in Acts 7. What we're to visualize is that in the middle of the fields, out at night, pitch black, except for the stars in the sky, the most blinding of lights come. And it was just referenced in the prayer earlier. We're to hear the echoes of Isaiah two, nine two. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Uh, those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. We're to Read that and say, it's happening. It's beginning. Light is breaking into the darkness. Jesus is coming down to bring about total transformation and to bring good news for all. Now, we see that he's called Lord. You see that in verse 11. He says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The word Lord shows up in Luke 1 and 2 25 times. 23 of those times it refers to God the Father. Two times it refers to Jesus. And we saw the first last week in the mouth of Elizabeth. She says, I'm privileged to have the mother of my Lord come to me. And then here we see it confirmed by the angels that this is God Almighty. This is not any ordinary child, but this is the Savior. This is Yahweh. This is the Lord of heaven and earth captured as a baby. God has come down to dwell with and among his people to bring joy. Right at the heart of the Christmas story is the announcement that Jesus Christ comes as Lord. He's no mere mortal, but the divine sovereign has come to dwell with his people. And why did he come? Why did Jesus come? Is it right that we should feel happy at Christmas? He came, Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you that my Joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus comes so that we would experience the deep wellspring of joy that only Jesus can bring. That we're to let these truths overcome us so that we marvel afresh, that we take our eyes off the roadkill and lift our eyes and see this is the Savior who's come to forgive us of our sins, to bring us into relationship with God Almighty, so that we would have life. And no matter all the stressors that come our way, we have hope because of what Christ has done. We are deeply loved by God. In verses 13 and 14, we see the angels cry out, their heavenly host praising God, saying glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Here we get the response of heaven. Maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of angels appear out of nowhere to declare the glories of what just took place. And what a sight this must have been to see the Father call angels to sing over the birth of his son. And and what's the point of this? This multitude of angels is for our benefit. The angels are always praising God in heaven. They don't stop. They didn't have to come down. But the reason they came down so that the shepherds could see it and so that they could tell Mary and then they could tell others and then it would be passed down so that we could read it now is to know how God the father felt about his son. He loves to send his son as a gracious gift for his children. No one would otherwise have known. We walk by glory all the time and we don't see it. We don't see heavenly realities on earth very often. But here, the heavens open and we see the reality of how God feels about Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Angels, sing your song to declare the glories of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus later says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. That is profound. That Jesus came at Christmas to show the glorious love of the Father. That the Father has for the Son and that the Son has for us. And it's a singing, praising, glorifying delight that God has in us. God delights in giving of his son and delights in loving us some of our friends recently bought their kids uh, a, a puppy a golden doodle and and they surprised them with it and i got to see the video and you see the mom come in and then all these kids start squealing and one of them says this is the best day ever This is the best day ever. This is the best Christmas gift ever, Mom. Thank you so much. And what does that mom feel in that moment? She feels joy, delight. I love spoiling my children. I love giving them good gifts. And that's how God the Father feels about Jesus and feels about us when he gives us this greatest gift. I love it when my children receive it with joy receive the greatest gift with joy and tell God Almighty, oh, this is the best day ever because of what you've accomplished in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't walk by glory and miss it. It's like the experiment the Washington Post did back in 2007. They got a world-famous violinist, Joshua Bell, and he played the violin, his multi-million dollar violin in the uh, the subway of D.C. And a thousand people walked by him a handful of people listened, stayed to listen. It was actually seven, and one person recognized him. And so they gave him a 20. Other than that, he earned about $32 in change. And the point is, here's a guy who's the best in his field, whose tickets to his concerts sell for hundreds of dollars, and yet people couldn't recognize glory, and they just walk right by. And so it is very often for some of us when it comes to Jesus We hear his name and we keep walking by. We don't stop and behold and say, here is the Lamb of God. Here's the Savior. Here's God incarnate in the flesh, written on the pages of scriptures for us to behold. And so what God is doing in this account is putting a big, giant exclamation mark, a big, giant spotlight. Look at my son. The most profound thing has happened in the Christmas story. Don't miss it this morning. Now, he says, the angels say that this is good news of great joy that will be for all the people. But then when they sing, they say, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So is it just, that sounds like two different groups. Is it for all people or is it with those whom God is pleased with? And the point there is this phrase, those whom he is pleased, is a technical phrase that points to God's election. And it confirms Mary's words earlier in chapter 1, verse 50, that mercy is for those who fear him. So good news is only good news if you respond to it and receive it and believe it. And if you don't and you reject it, then it becomes bad news. And so this good news demands a response of believing and receiving And so this morning, have you received this good news? Has it made a difference in your life? Does Jesus make any difference to you? Have you received this good news of great joy personally? Have you responded with appropriate praising and worship? Now we see earth's response in 15 to 20. The shepherds go with haste. And they see it as it was told to them. They're even given the privilege of telling Mary all that had happened. They become heralds of good news. And so we see how shepherds get transformed. And it's a good reminder for us. What type of response do we give to this good news? For the shepherds, their fear was turned to praise and worship. They went from fearful to being heralds, praising, glorifying, and worshiping God. It brought about joy that would spring out from their very souls. This good news turns their fear to worship, and it reminds us this morning that God came to rescue us from our sins and failures and the brokenness of the world in which we live, so that he would take you with all of your anxieties, all of your problems, all of your financial hardships, all of the physical suffering, all of the family strains that you're feeling right now, all of the external pressures and then internal anxiety. And he wants to turn it to worship and praise and glorifying God because you've received the greatest gift, of all time. Now, Mary responds, it says, treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. She cherishes them, thinks upon them, rolls them over in her mind over and over again. And very similarly, do we ponder and cherish and treasure this truth? Or do we say, okay, let's read Luke 2, and then let's move on with the things that matter at this time of year. Are you marinating in social media spats about masks and vaccines and restrictions and the election and the ups and downs of the stock market? Or are you marinating your soul on the greatest reality in all of the world that Jesus Christ has come and that Jesus Christ will come again. And he comes to bring us joy, to transform our hearts and minds. He wants to fill our hearts with his everlasting joy so that it crowds out all of the other things that cloud our vision at this time of year. Now, Jesus has come to dwell with and among his people. And as we seek to apply these truths, to let them change our life, to transform us. How should we live? How should we think about them? The first is that Jesus came to fulfill the promises and the prophecy that was made long ago. These truths are verifiable facts. These truths change and transform our lives because some of us come to this Christmas story and we think it's mythology, it's legend. And it doesn't do us any good or others of us read it and we think that's great But I need something that will really give me some hope and peace and comfort. I want to feel that god loves me right now Give me something else And what this story does for us, that it tells us that God came in exactly the way that he prophesied, fulfilling his word so that he will continue to be true to his promises and to his word. And so when Jesus says, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you, do you think he's going to be true to his word? He was true to prophecies and promises from hundreds of years ago, and so he will be true to his word today when he says, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. I care for you. I want you to experience my joy. Or when Paul speaks this in Romans 8, neither death nor life Nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He's true to his word. He's trustworthy. You can take those promises and bank your entire life savings and your life on them. He will not disappoint. You can go all in on Jesus. Sins forgiven. Christ as our treasure. And he paid the ultimate cost for us to have joy everlasting. Jesus has paid the ultimate cost. I remember when I was a kid growing up, there was one year that the really hot Christmas toy was a Tickle Me Elmo. How many of you remember? And how many of you had one? No one, no one wants to admit they had one. All of you guys had one. No, maybe not. So I, I don't know what Elmo is. It's either a dog or some sort of creepy talking thing. But this toy was like yay big. And I think you touched its hand or you said something and then it would fall on the ground and squeal and giggle like a small toddler would. And it was the most interesting and fascinating and creepy thing all rolled up at once. And it was the hottest toy. No one could get one. People would go and buy as many as they could, and then they would resell them for two or three or ten times the cost. And you would have all these desperate parents trying to do whatever they could to buy one for their children. Why? Because these parents want their children to be happy. And so they pay two, they pay three, they pay 10 times the cost, the retail cost, in order to get this toy. And yet we have a heavenly father who wants you to be happy, who wants you to experience eternal joy forever and ever. And he didn't pay two times the cost or three times the cost or even 10 times the cost. He paid the ultimate cost with his own life and blood. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly. When we hated him, we would have spit on him if we were there. We would have yelled expletives at him if we were at his crucifixion. And he died for us so that we would have everlasting life because he loves to give his children good gifts. And we have received the greatest gift in all of the world. The birth of the Savior, Christ the Lord. He wants his children to be happy and that happiness to be rooted in the sacrificial, everlasting joy, sacrificial death of Jesus that gives us everlasting joy. Now, the measure of whether something is really good is whether it remains to be good when everything else falls apart. Is this good news of great joy that will be for all the people still good news If my life falls apart, if I get sick, if I'm unemployed, if I'm lonely, if I miscarried, if my marriage is strained to the point of breaking, if my mental health is suffering, if I've lost my wife or husband, if I'm on hospice and I've just discontinued all chemo treatments. And I know in that list I just named, many of us are there right now. The shininess of a new car, like in the commercials, with the big red bow on top, means absolutely nothing if I'm on my deathbed or if I've just lost my loved one. But this good news of great joy that will be for all the people is durable good news. Because even when everything else falls apart, even if you're on your deathbed or your loved one is on their deathbed, God has given us his son so that we would experience everlasting joy. Joy in such a way that we would taste of it, and then our own hearts and souls become wellsprings of life and joy, and that it overflows onto our lips, and that we can tell others, Come, behold this Jesus. We can be like the shepherds, praising, glorifying God because the greatest gift in all the world has come. Truly, Jesus Christ has come, and it's good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would take our eyes off the distractions around us and lift our eyes high to see Jesus, high and exalted, In all of his splendor, majesty, glory, and deep and profound love for us. So help us to feel your love this morning, even as we respond in song and declare your praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others